0: Thank you for joining us today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to stimulate thought, expand consciousness, And encourage community. I say encourage community because I believe that the vast majority of we humans are friendly tribal animals and when we live in small enough communities in which we know each person by name or at minimum by face, we are collaborative enough to sustain everyone with the bare essentials of nutritious food, warm shelter, health care, and education provided with dignity, respect, kindness, and love. Today we are bringing you another in our series called Confessions of the Psychedelic Elders. In this series, prominent people in the sciences and arts are going to reveal to you, our listeners, and the world, details Of their courageous sub rosa self-experimentation with psychedelics over the past decades. My purpose in creating this series is to counter the half century of disinformation that our country has led the world into believing about psychedelic medicines and inform the world that prominent good citizens, contributory citizens, patriots, solid fathers and mothers and civic leaders have risked their careers and their livelihoods in order to learn about and from these psychedelic substances and thereby allow the general public to benefit from their significant healing and creative properties. Our special guest today is Dr. Rick Doblin. I first met Rick Doblin in 1985 at a special conference at the Esalen Institute. During that week that we spent together, Rick said to me, you know, I'm going to go to Harvard. I'm going to get a Ph.D. and I'm going to give every member of Congress some MDMA because I believe (laughs) that opening up their hearts will change the country. Well, he went on in 1986 to start MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, which has been on the very forefront of promoting psychedelic science research around the planet. And I'm not exaggerating when I say on the very forefront. In addition, Rick went on in 2001 and fulfilled his promise. He got his PhD from the Harvard School of Government and he's been Dr. Rick Doblin ever since. It is my extreme pleasure and privilege to have my old friend back on the program today. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Rick. Uh,
1: thank you, Richard. Thank you very much.
0: It's it's really wonderful to have you here and, and for you to be participating uh, in this uh, Confessions of Psychedelic Elders series. <laughs> um, where are you presently living?
1: Well, I'm in... Um belmont massachusetts which is next to cambridge where i've been since 1998 because i moved it back up here in order to get my phd and so i've been here since then and i'm up in my attic office i have a home office we have over 120 staff now but i like to have um nobody where i work so i've got no staff here but um just me and my attic and staff all over the place
0: and you do qualify as a psychedelic elder, if I may ask, how old are you?
1: I'm 67 and a half. So I guess that does uh, rank me there as an elder. It's um, That's my big confession, I guess. It's hard to see myself as an elder, <laughs> but that's the way it goes. I think it's part because I decided to focus my life on psychedelics when I was 18 in 1972. So that's 49 years ago. And I'm still doing the same thing. So I feel pretty connected to my 18 year old self. And, uh, but nope, I'm getting to be an elder. That's for sure.
0: Well, you're past 65, so you do qualify for this series. I, I do, I know exactly what you're talking about with regard to the experience <laughs> of this thing called aging, <laughs> because I'm 82 now. And, uh, the only time. Wow. Yeah, no kidding. And the only time I really feel it is when I'm standing up, sitting down or laying down. I don't feel
1: it. <laughs> Rick, we, we, well, 82 is great. I mean, that's really encouraging, you know, that you could be doing as much as you're doing now at 82. That's fantastic.
0: Thanks. Were you brought up with religion?
1: Yes, very much so. I mean, I, um, you know, was born Jewish. And I um, when I was just a couple years old, my family moved to Skokie illinois and outside chicago and everybody they knew was jewish i thought the whole world was jewish in fact it was a big uh, eye-opener for me when i was six years old that my parents told me that the whole world is not jewish and in fact the jews are a fraction of one percent of the world population and it just was uh astonishing to me um and i also had this whole um anxiety. And so I said, well, what if they're right? You know, what if Jesus is the Messiah and I'm going to hell (laughs) or they were were like, well, you don't have to worry about that too much. But, um, I was grow. I, I also had loads of relatives in Israel. So I was educated on stories of the Holocaust. Um, and also my grandparents had kept kosher. My parents didn't keep kosher. Um, we didn't keep kosher. Um, But I had to go to Hebrew school. My parents were a part of a conservative temple. And I had to go to Hebrew school three times a week. And, you know, I was in Israel multiple times in my childhood. But I'd say one of the pivotal moments in my life was my bar mitzvah um, when I was 13. And that's because I'm the oldest of four kids, the first one to go through it. And somehow I thought that this rite of passage would be a spiritual experience and that, that I would have some confrontation with uh, the divine. I would be transformed into a man. There would be some kind of real change in me. And I just remember um, in my bed the morning after my bar mitzvah thinking, I'm the same. There's nothing happened. I'm the same. And I, I told myself, um, it must have been a busy Saturday. Lots of people must got bar mitzvah and bat mitzvah. God will take a while. You know, I'm not the number one in his list. Eventually, God will show around. So then the second day I wake up, after my Bar Mitzvah, I'm still the same. Third day, I'm still the same. And I keep telling myself, well, something will happen. And then when it was a week later and a whole new crop of people were getting Bar mitzvah, and nothing happened to me, that's when I concluded that um, I had fallen off the list. So I think that um, the emptiness of that rite of passage was a really important moment in my life. and it's when I first started taking LSD and psilocybin and mescaline that I started thinking this is engaging the energies that I thought my Bar Mitzvah would engage. So I was uh, 17 and 18 when I did that. And just to give you a sense, so that even though we were religious um, and had to go to temple and celebrated the holidays, my dad was a very much of a kind of a free thinker and near the end of his life, Benny Shanon is an Israeli, he was head of the cognitive psychology at Hebrew University, and he got very interested in ayahuasca. And he wrote this book the um, about the different kind of ranges of experiences you could have on ayahuasca. And then he later got very interested in the Bible and biblical sources of psychedelics. And then he wrote this scientific paper that said that Moses was high on psychedelics when he saw the burning bush, that No, no. Well, well, this is Benny Shannon wrote this paper, but so, so, but it'll get to my dad in just a second. Yeah. So, so Benny writes this paper and it gets worldwide publicity. Moses was high on manna and it was a psychedelic drug. And there was an article in the New York times. And, um, I used that as an opportunity to call my dad. And I was like, um, this validates my whole life. You know, everything's, you know, Moses was high on psychedelics. It's from our own traditions. What do you think about that? And my dad was great. He was like, well, in order for me to believe that story that Moses was high on psychedelics when he saw the burning bush, first off, I'd have to believe in Moses. <laughs> and I was like, what can I say? Because then he said, you know, there's no archaeological evidence about the Jews building the pyramids. There's no archaeological evidence about the Jews crossing the Sinai Desert and spending 40 years in the Sinai before they make it to the promised land. And so, so I was... Religious in the tribal sense, forced to do a lot of this, the the um, you know Hebrew school and bar mitzvah and all that, but I feel more Jewish in this uh, yeah in the tribal sense rather than the um, liturgical you know kind of um, specific symbols and all that. But I, I do still celebrate Yom Kippur and I definitely identify as Jews and I would say that the. Um, uh, Lessons from the Holocaust are what's driven my whole life and my interest in psychedelics.
0: What is your present conception of God?
1: Well, um, I don't see it as a um, personified spirit. I think in a lot of my early psychedelic trips, you know, I was wanting um, a release from uncertainty, you could say. So I wanted to have this kind of uh, godlike figure figure tell me stuff, and that would be the truth, and I would now know the truth, and um, that never happened. So uh, in a way, I felt the uh, emptiness of that, and then I actually came to appreciate that, that I didn't kind of try to fool myself or make something concrete. So my perception of God is really just this um, unified force, you could say, that... Um, the energy underneath matter, the timeless transcendence of time and place. It's it's not that there's a Jewish God or a Christian God or a Muslim God or uh, Buddha or Hindu, you know, Buddhism or Hinduism, um, anything like that. So I think it's kind of a generalized um, force in the energy that, in the universe that's behind everything, is, is how I understand it.
0: And would you say that From your earlier life, when you were an early teenager or even before that, you had a different perception of God when you were growing up and you were studying religion and so on, and that it's changed either through life experience or through psychedelics?
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I definitely had that um, sort of naive childhood thing that God was this unique spirit and that there's something that's God and then there's something that's not God. You know, that, that, so, so that's an interesting thing. If there's a specific God, then that's this thing, then everything that's not, that is not God. So what is that other stuff? So I no longer think that, that there's God and not God. I think it's all together. Um, and I think, I don't think as literal a way as I used to think. Um, and I've sort of reinterpreted, you know, the Jews are the chosen people, but so is everybody that, you know, we're all called to change the world. Um, and also Yom Kippur uh, is every day, you know, so that out of convenience, we sort of turn certain holidays on certain days when we turn our attention to certain things. But this idea that there's this one day that's unique and that that's the day that you get written into the book of life for the next year and that that's this day of atonement, you know, that, the, um, that there was an album I, re- I actually listened to when I was, um, yeah, eighteen years old, and it had this line in it that every day is Judgment Day. You know that um, that there's not like this one day of things. So now I see that these holidays are about you know bringing these thoughts to our awareness, helping us focus on certain things. But there's nothing unique about the day of Yom Kippur from the day before or the day after. It's the same day. We've just choose chosen to celebrate. Um, you could say maybe it's different for Christmas. You know, Jesus was born this day and not that day. But, you know, I think for a lot of the historical his um, holidays in Judaism, yeah, they, they're related to certain things. But I think Rosh Hashanah, the new year, you know, that could be any day. You know, so anyway, that's my understanding. I, I've changed a lot. And I think psychedelics have really um, helped me to do that. And And I'll say that the most mystical experience in my whole life Um, surprisingly, was on MDMA, not on LSD or psilocybin.
0: Well, we're going to get to that. But before we do, I wanted to mention that you uh, mentioned that you have a lot of relatives in Israel. And that uh, reminded me that I I had the very good fortune of going to Israel with you and Dr. Michael Mithoffer, Dr. June Roos, the fellow from Spain, Jorge, uh, what's his last name? You'll remember. Uh, Busso? Oh, oh,
1: yeah, yeah. Jose Carlos Busso. Yeah. Oh, yes,
0: right. And uh, and we, we went to Israel, and something happened there that had a, a very powerful impact on my life. And I don't know to what extent I've ever shared it with you, but at oh. one at one time, I mean, we were there to talk to them, and you were leading the way about their using MDMA with post traumatic stress people. Who had seen just horrific things during the first uh, infada, right? And 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 yeah. when, when we were there, the hotel David was closed down. And I remember our cab driver told us that of a hundred cabs in his group, they were down to seven. I mean, it was a pretty they they, they were pretty devastated. And at one time, uh, as we were going and meeting out with different groups, we met with the um, with the head of their Supreme Court, uh, and and she took me aside at one point. And in a very sort of sotto voce voice, she said to me, Richard, we would love to use MDMA with PTSD. We believe in what uh, Rick and all of you are bringing us very strongly. We know it's efficacious, but we can't do it because if we were to do it, your country would sanction us. And that's the reason we're going to have to say no to you. And that was a big moment in my life when I heard it from such a high-ranking person that the suppressive reach of the United States with regard to basic research was so powerful. And that story has stuck with me ever since. Uh, And then, of course, I've researched that point uh, since then a great deal and found out that how Harry Anslinger went to the United Nations and he how he went personally. Harry Anslinger, for you who are coming on, haven't heard of him before, folks, was uh, the first uh, chief of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. He was appointed by his uh, uncle, uh, Andrew Mellon, who was secretary of the Treasury in 1935. And, and he went on a campaign. And, and this reach spread around the world. And hearing it from this high-ranking person in, in Israel was very meaningful to me. Uh, you know, in, in, a, in, a, in a psychological way, in a sociological and political way. So I wanted to share that with you. Uh, but coming back to. Um, yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, let me just, just reflect on that. Just to say that the um, one of the most successful exports of uh, America has been our repressive drug policy all over the world.
0: It's, Nicely put. It's a Su- terrible thing. Successful export of suppression. So, how old were you when you then, you mentioned late teens. Tell us more about your first experience with a mind-altering substance. What do you remember?
1: Well, um, let me say my very first experience was my senior year of high school um, smoking a joint. I had not smoked at all. And um, that was a horrible experience because my friend and I, you know, my parents don't drink. You know, so I didn't grow up around drugs. I'm the oldest of, you know, four kids. So um, a friend of mine um, had some marijuana. We didn't have any paper, so we rolled it up in newspaper and smoked it that way. It was very harsh and unpleasant, but I do remember listening to Carlos Santana's Abraxas album and seeing a whole new side of it, how it was really great. So psychedelic, I mean, marijuana and and music was like my big introduction. then at college, when I did um, my first experience with LSD, you know, I, I had grown up in the 60s, graduated college in 71. I mean, graduated high school in 71, started college in 71. But so I had believed the propaganda. I thought that uh, a bunch of doses and you were certifiably insane. I believed that it caused chromosome damage. I believed that nothing good came from it. And it was actually a um, person in my Russian class. I was studying Russian to learn about the other in high school, and he gave me a book to read. And I loved it. I gave it back to him, and he said, "Do you realize the person who wrote this book wrote part of it under the influence of LSD?" And, and I said, "That's impossible." And he said, "No, it's true." It turned out it was true. It was uh, Ken Kesey's "One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest." Um, so that's what really got me to take LSD. I thought, if somebody could write something that's so powerful and so emotional and so thoughtful and so metaphorical um, under L- the influence of LSD, it can't be all that bad. So my first experience was this um, sort of loosening of my sense of uh, control, of my ego sense. And at this point, I was very shy. I was, um, you know, insecure, 17 years old in college. And I felt like this loosening of um, who I thought I was. And um, I remembered one of my favorite albums, as long as we're talking about uh, well music, one of my favorite albums from the 60s is by um David Crosby and it was a solo album and he had everybody from all the different groups in San Francisco sitting in on it on different cuts but the name of the album was if i could only remember my name and so that's what my first lsd experience was was starting to be like it's like who am i and and where did i get this name from and what is my name and and what am i doing here and, and so there was that sense of going beyond my sense but also my fear at losing control like that and going crazy all of that and so i was kind of um kept a lid on it a little bit but i do remember these intimations of um ego estate spiritual connection you know something going on and emotions came to the surface it, it really the the main thing i learned from my first lsd trip was that i had emotions that i wasn't just cognitive in my mind i, I love to read i was very Good at school. I was just really much in my head. Um, and then the one funny memory I have is it was on a Saturday, and at New College, um, Saturday night was when they would have steak at the uh, food plan. And so I remember um, thinking near the end of the day, oh, time, I should go have my steak. And I just remember like it taking forever, like this infinite walk to get to the dining room that I was just like walking but getting nowhere. And then I, I, I sort of think, can I figure out how to stand in line and And I ended up standing in line and getting this piece of steak and going with my tray to the table and sitting down with some friends. and I put the first piece of steak in my mouth, and I was like, "I forgot what to do with it. I was like, "What am I do now? You know, chew it. What am I to want to eat this thing for?" And so then I just left. I couldn't do it. but the the thing that I left from that first experience was just this sense that um I had a lot of fears and anxieties. I wasn't fully letting go but that there was something of fundamental value there and that it had also opened the door for me for a deeper emotional experience and this thought that that is what my uh, energies my bar mitzvah should have engaged but did
0: so you knew that left me wanting to do more that was my next question so it left you wanting to do more and what yeah. happened take us along what happened next when did you do more
1: Well, okay, so the other part of this is that I had um, gotten a copy of the Whole Earth Catalog, which had been published by Stuart Brand with the picture of the Earth from space and all. And in that Whole Earth Catalog, which I had read, there was an advertisement for a book by a fellow named John Lilly. And John Lilly had done research funded by the Navy into um, what was called um, isolation tanks. Now it's been rebranded as flotation tanks. Um, But the idea was, you know, what do we do when we're cut off with sensation? What does our brain do? And also he was funded to do LSD in the flotation tank. And he wrote this incredible book called Programming and Metaprogramming in the Human Biocomputer. I have that book right here, actually, nearby me. Um, That book, um, because it was about How Your Mind Works, it was about LSD, so I bought a copy of that book, and so friends and I started at college trying to develop sensory deprivation environments within which we would do deep LSD experiences. Um, Also mescaline. Somebody came by um, New College with half a pound of mescaline, so I bought all of it, and uh, friends and I did a whole bunch of it uh, over time. So I I had early experiences with synthetic mescaline and LSD. Synthetic mescaline being warmer, more open-hearted than LSD. And so that was really helpful as well. But, you know, these isolation experiments were really important. Now, also keep in mind that when I started having these experiences, 71, 72, it was after the backlash. It was after the psychedelic research had been squashed, after Nixon had done the Controlled Substances Act of 1970, after the... um, Elimination of research with psychedelics, pretty much everywhere. A few little stragglers here and there, but then criminalizing it all over the world and shutting it down. And also, I was um, a draft resistor, and um, I had studied nonviolent resistance, and I was anticipating that I would be arrested for not registering for the draft, and I would go to jail. So all of that is in the background. So I started doing more of this uh, flotation tank, or we didn't quite have a tank, but we, you know, put uh, goggles on and gloves and. Tried to get at a comfortable temperature and stuff like that. Um, and and I just would have these difficult experiences. More and more I would have um, fear and I would sort of clench up. And I would tell myself that, um, you know, the, the 60s had crashed and burned. A lot of it was uh, resistance from the culture, but some of it was um, immaturities from the psychedelic advocates, you could say. Um over-reliance on psychedelics, one-dose miracle cure, not enough focus on um, integration, um, too much uh, anti-authoritarianism and developing counterculture. Um, So all of these things, though, made me think, um, this is something incredibly important. It's been suppressed. I really need to keep doing this. And it's maybe this antidote to uh, genocide. And, um, you know, if, if people can have this sense of how we're all connected. So... I kept doing it. And each time I would do these deep inner explorations, I would get frightened at an earlier point in the, the experience. And then I would have more time just sort of gripping on, holding on, fighting it, resisting it. So, what was the turning point for me was I went to the guidance counselor at college. And it turns out that, you know, again, this was an experimental college, started in 1965, was the first class. Um, had a whole tradition of students experimenting with psychedelics had a tradition of all night dances till sunrise with psychedelics the um, swimming pool was a nudist colony which was great for a shy guy like me and
0: do you have any idea let me just interrupt for a second kindly um do you have uh, any idea about the dosages of those uh oh yeah please tell us about that
1: yeah yeah. So one of the things that's happened over these years is that dealers have gotten more careful about dosage. And so back then, the standard dose of LSD was 250 micrograms. You know, none of this talk about microdosing, none of this talk about 100 micrograms. These were um, existential doses where you would have periods of time where you couldn't remember your name, where you had a hard time being verbal. Now, and I haven't checked this recently, but it, the average dose of a blot or hit of acid was somewhere like 60 or 80 micrograms. So you have to really intentionally take a bunch of them to get to these very difficult states. So the mescaline dosage was around um, 400 milligrams because mescaline is not as anywhere near as powerful as psychedelics. So you need to take a bunch of it, even synthetic um, mescaline. And then mushrooms, you know, because we're in Florida, there was a lot of cattle around there. There was a bunch of um, mushroom pastures. And so um, mushrooms was in the range of four to five grams. So the, these were significant experiences and they were just very difficult for me. But I sort of kept thinking it's such a crazy world and we could blow ourselves up or we could, you know, have another Hitler or we could um, my own government wanting to do terrible things in Vietnam. and.
0: All, all very accurate. All very accurate, yeah, so, if I may
1: say. Yeah, so I ended up, um, you know, going to the guidance counselor, and he gave me a book to read. He took me seriously. So what, where, where I told about the story school, just to say the guidance counselor took me seriously. He said, this is important. And he said, here's another book to read. And it was Realms of the Human Unconscious, Observations from LSD Research by Stan Groff. And what, what's astonishing about that is that the book wasn't published till 1975. So this is 1972, my guidance counselor not only has a copy, manuscript copy of this book, but he also has Stan's address and got it from Stan. So I have this guidance counselor and when I'm reading the book, that's, so I guess if you can say my confession or what really motivated me in this area was reading Stan's book, because I was very interested in the political aspects of the spiritual mystical experience, but I didn't really trust religion because it's so much wrapped up in dogma and prejudice and, you know, we're the only way. Um, but I trusted science. And so here was science looking at the realms of the human unconscious, including mystical experiences. But um, I, I don't know if you remember this, but there was a book called the Arantia book. There, there's these, in the 60, yeah, now that was like, I don't know, thousands of pages. And it's all, it, people get lost in this kind of describing the spiritual world. And I felt that, people were just lost in this and it became another kind of story to tell instead of an inspirational thing. And so what was so important to me about reading Stan's book was that it had this focus on science, focus on spiritual experiences, but it had this reality check, which is therapy. You know, are we able to actually help people get better? Can we use these experiences in a therapeutic context? And then the question of, is this a real experience? Is this metaphorical? It doesn't matter as much when your question is, is it an effective experience to help people grow? So you don't have to have like truth claims to say, yes, you had this um, mystical experience and it's actually true. Or you had this memory and it's actually true. It's more that these are, Symbolic or actual, either way, you need to experience them, you need to express them, you need to have the uh, full flowering of the emotions and in body. And if sensations in your body, you need to exaggerate, you need to process it. So I thought that this element of therapy in Stan's book was the key, that it was really about this practical question of people are suffering during this lifespan and how do we help them be better and you can have all these abstract theories about what the universe is like and quantum theory how many dimensions are there how many membranes how many this how many that does it really really matter i mean it matters it matters about our understanding of the universe but it's i just love the so i asked this um guidance counselor if he could put me in touch with stan and he said he could so i'm a confused 18 year old and i'm writing to this md phd at johns hopkins who's seeing his research be shut down. who's written this book calling attention to the incredible power of psychedelics. And in one of the luckiest moments of my life, Stan got my letter and decided to write me back. And he told me that he was um, sympathetic with my desire to kind of learn about psychedelics. And also that he was going to be giving a workshop that summer in California. And I was invited to participate. And I had a, a a professor who had at New College who had actually studied with Jung, and so it was a Jungian psychology class, and I felt in this um, class of hers that um, it was too organized, and my my emotions were a jumble. My my spiritual explorations were like turbulent. I was having all these difficult times, and I couldn't really benefit that much from this kind of um, class in Jung. Marian Hoppen was her name, the professor. And I realized that I was unbalanced emotionally and and spiritually immature compared to overdeveloped in my cognitive capacities. And I felt that the world is like that too. We have a miraculous technology that we're using right now to talk to each other involving satellites and all these different things so that we can have this communication. But we don't, as a species, have the emotional, spiritual maturity to deal with the technology that we have, hence climate change and nuclear weapons and war, and we're destroying the world. So I felt that I was unbalanced and that um, even studying with a woman who'd studied with Jung wasn't going to do it. So I realized that um, I needed to drop out of college and work on my emotional and spiritual development. And so I called my parents and I said, I want to drop out of school, I want to study LSD, and I want you guys to pay for it. And my parents were, um, after a little bit of time, willing to do that. So they paid for me to go see Stan, and I did a three-week primal therapy intensive. I did a month-long encounter group in the mountains of California. I had all these experiences, but they didn't really bring me to where I thought I wanted to be, to this peaceful, inner, happy place, enlightened. And what I realized is that I had a fundamental... So this is a, this is a real confession, is that I had this fundamental delusion that the more drugs you take, the faster you evolve.
0: Very, and, um, very American.
1: The yeah. More.
0: yeah I, more. So I
1: just took loads, more, more, more. And, you know, of course what that does is you're ignoring the importance of integration. And actually the more drugs you do can actually be a block to your maturity and your development. If you keep dredging things up without kind of integrating them. So after I did the deepest things that I could think of, you know, the workshop with Stan, it was with Joan Halifax actually, also after he had been married to her briefly. And, um, I did primal therapy, three week intensive. And then I, I, Persuaded my primal therapist to let me do LSD as well for him to sit me with sit for me with an LSD trip to, to do the primal scream and all of that. And I was, yeah, yeah, Arthur Janoff. And um, it was just, um, you know, I wasn't where I wanted to be. And so I went home and um, lost and confused. And here it is. You can imagine I'm the oldest of four kids the first one out of the nest and I come back wounded, you could say, dropping out of college, doing LSD, confused, not sure what to do. And I spent a couple months at home and my parents were good to let me come at home. And then what happened was that um, I finally realized that I needed to be grounded, that I was all in my head and thinking about spirituality and I needed to um, um, get into the physical world. And so that's where I talked to my parents and I said, if you can, um, um, pay for materials. I want to build a handball court and I want to donate it to the college. I want to get into the physical world and build something. And my parents were so glad to get me back at college setting, even if I wasn't a student, they said yes to that. So, uh, and that led to a 10 year career in construction and building houses and things. And that's what really got me grounded. And it was after that 10, it took me 10 years from my early um, LSD, mescaline and psilocybin experiences to really get ready, I thought, to do psychedelic again as the foreground, not the background, not as part of me developing my strength and maturity. So throughout from um, 18 to 28 was this period where I knew I was going to go back to school. I knew I wanted to become a psychedelic therapist, but I knew I wasn't ready. So this 10 years was about getting ready. And then in, when I was turned um, 28 and I went back to college, this is now uh, 1982, um, new college, I went back to the same place, and my professor, I built a house for my professor, so I knew that um, he was uh, he liked me, and, and I said, what a shame now, I'm just coming back to college after 10 years, but I don't want to be here, because Stan Groff is giving a workshop at Esalen, in the, for a month-long workshop in the uh, Mystical Quest, and I want to go there, and I want to work on developing a curriculum to become a psychedelic therapist, and my professor said, sure, no problem, so... In uh, September 1982 is when I spent a month at Esalen with Stan and Christina, learning about the breathwork, learning about uh, the mystical quest. But what I also learned about was a woman named Debbie Harlow came by and she said there's a new drug called Adam. And it helps you talk to people. It helps you be a better listener. It helps you feel love, And it's a, it's a terrific drug. And... Um, unfortunately it has escaped a little bit of these therapy settings and it's also become ecstasy and sold in public settings and i was like interested and then um, i saw a group of people that she'd given mdma to sitting around in a circle doing mdma talking to each other and i was like how boring i mean if you take a drug and you can still talk to people what kind of spiritual experience is that you know how profound can it be you're verbal the whole time practically Uh, it's just So I like to say that I was stupid enough to underestimate it, but smart enough to buy some. (laughs) And so I ended up um, taking it home and did it with my girlfriend and had the most profound experience that was so surprising to me. And um, I had completely underestimated how profound the experience was and how important it could be and how much therapeutic potential it had. So that's what really then began my interest in MDMA.
0: 1982. Yeah. That was about three years before we met It in 85 at that conference at Esalen. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And then I, I'll just say that I went back to college. I developed a curriculum to become a psychedelic therapist. I, I had every class that I needed, the book list for every class. And then I just started doing those classes. And, you know, I would, of course, go and get a psychology major. And then I would supplement all these classes with independent study projects and reading. There was a fellow named Ed Barker who had been in charge of um, a PhD program at Harvard in psychology and social change. He'd been the lead trainer for the Peace Corps, and he had retired in Sarasota. And he had such a good reputation that the um, faculty would let me do a study with uh, classes with him, and they would just sign off on it because he had such a good reputation. Also, he they didn't know this, but he did even more psychedelics than I did. So I studied with him a lot. Um, when, right when I went back to school, I said, I, 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 he was also my therapist. And so I went through this process. Am I crazy to want to focus my life on psychedelics? Is, is that like a childhood um, delusion? You know, am I insane? Why do I want to do this? Why is it, you know, such conflict with the culture? But we persuaded ourselves um, that there was some legitimacy to it. Um, And so then in 84 is when I went back to Esalen and spent another month with Stan and Christina on what was called the Spiritual Emergence Network. Uh, So it's how to help people having uh, psychological crises that are not, they're often pathologized, pathologized, but they're sometimes like a breakthrough for something new. And that if you support people through that, they can end up better. R.D. Lang was a big exponent of this kind of theory that, you know, we need to, um, not try to suppress symptoms all the time, but but let let things develop and.
0: You know, so it was, just um, an aside, Rick. R.D. Lang was a major influence in my life, and he was part of what influenced me to start Wilbur Hot Springs.
1: Oh really? Can and you I, say how that I happened, happened Richard? Richard? That's great.
0: Well, yes, because R- Ronnie Lang was doing this work at the Tavistock Institute in London, and he wrote about what he called the therapeutic milieu. It, it was creating an atmosphere that in and of itself was therapeutic. And I connected that to some work that had been done in the, in the late 19th century in New England, where they took uh, mental patients out of mental hospitals and they put them on farms and they just lived on these farms and they had tremendous success with it. But the whole uh, protocol failed because the farms were too near people's homes, and they had this thing called NIMBY, you know, not in my backyard. Yeah, so people yeah. didn't want these people open on farms so close to them. They wanted them locked in. So the program went down, but there were papers written about the success of that. And Lang did that in, in Tavistock, and I got word of it. And it influenced me when in my clinic in San Francisco uh, in the late 60s and early 70s. And I wanted to start a therapeutic milieu. And to this very day, I refer to Wilbur Hot Springs as a health sanctuary, uh, and I did right from the beginning. I don't refer to it as a hotel. I'm not a hotel person. I don't know anything about running a hotel, but I know how to run a health facility and, and create one. And so Wilbur was created uh, in, a, in a Langian, and I've always given him credit, in a wow. Langian way as being a therapeutic milieu, an atmosphere where you can go and look within and retreat. So that, that's the uh, the connection with Rodney. Oh. Yeah.
1: Yeah, that, that's terrific. Yeah, because he was such an inspiration, too.
0: Oh, yes. Um, the last time I yeah. saw him was in Denver, Colorado at a big conference. May he, may he rest in peace. And, of course, his book, Knots, for those of you listening, K-N-O-T-S, yeah. It's a must-read. It, there are certain books of, of that era that's a, that are a must-read, and that's one of them. And the other one was once a professor down your way in Florida, Sidney Girard, and he wrote The Transparent Self at that time, which was also a very seminal book. So let's come back now to where you are. You're now in around.
1: Oh, oh, oh. Before we do that, let me just say that. So after I, I did this uh, workshop on the Spiritual Emergence Network, I come back to school. I'm only there four or five days. And a friend of mine says that um, I'd given him MDMA, which he did with his girlfriend. And during that experience, I, I didn't know her. Um, she had uh, memories of past um, sexual assault that was very serious, um, physical violence, sexual assault, terrible story. And that, that the doing the MDMA together um, brought this to the surface, but there wasn't a good container for it. And so she felt suicidal. And she actually checked herself into a mental institution after the MDMA, and they just kept her for four or five days, stabilized her, but they gave her the same old drugs that had never worked before. And so my friend said, "She's out of the hospital. She's even more depressed than before because they had nothing to do, nothing to give her to help her." And they said, "You know, would you work with her with MDMA?" And so this was one of the key turning points of my life. Was um, I? I thought, "I'm not qualified." you know, I'm not a, this is a woman who's suicidal. You know, what if I say the wrong thing? You know, I'm not really a therapist. I'm learning to be a therapist, but I'm not really a therapist. But I realized that first off, I had a responsibility because I had provided them with the MDMA. But secondly, there was nothing that mainstream psychiatry could do for her. The medications hadn't worked. The inpatient facility had to work. So I agreed to talk to her. And during that conversation, I said to her, "Um, if you promise not to commit suicide, when we work together, I will work with you. And um, she agreed to do that. So I-, I mentioned this story, it was what I talked about in my TED talk as well. But I mentioned this just to say that it was in 1984 that I knew that MDMA was tremendous for PTSD. I mean, it's tremendously helpful. And um, I'll just say that Marcela, the woman I worked with in 1984, um, later decided to become a healer. There's an archetype called the wounded healer, about people that um, kind of are wounded, but they can manage to get healthy and that they have the um, persuasive ability, the empathy to help others. So this archetype of the wounded healer. So she um, later became a therapist and now she's one of our lead therapists and she trains other therapists for MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD.
0: I've, I've long felt that the more problems those of us who are therapists have had and have dealt with, the, the better we are at doing the work because of what you just said that we've had the yeah. experience of going through the particular the particular issue so there you are you 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 you've learned about mdma you're real excited about it and then the sort of damocles comes down in 1985 wasn't it that uh, the, the, that it was scheduled
1: yeah yeah it was although i'll i'll say that um what really then happened though, was in 83 Um, I read this book by the Assistant Secretary General of the United Nations. um, Robert Mueller was his name, and the book was New Genesis, Shaping a Global Spirituality. And this was now this validation of my theory of change. What he was saying is that the United Nations is to try to mediate disputes between countries, but a lot of those disputes are religious-based, and fundamentalism is a major danger, and that we need to try to help overcome this fundamentalism, but we can do it with this global spirituality. He actually had a picture of the Earth from space on the title, the cover of the book. So I wrote him a letter and talked to him about MDMA and talked to him about the need for... Um, I talked to him about the Good Friday experiment, which was 62 uh, with Leary at Harvard about whether um, psilocybin could cause mystical experiences, which it concluded that it did, with uh, divinity students from Andover Newton in... Church on Good Friday with actually Howard Thurman, Reverend Martin Luther King's mentor, uh, who studied with Gandhi and really introduced uh, nonviolence into the civil rights movement. But um, so I, I told Robert Mueller about all these things, and I, I said um, every new way of killing gets unlimited money. And if this spirituality is as important as you say it is, psychedelics can help us learn about it. Whether you consider it to be pseudo spiritual or real, either way, you know, can you help us bring back um, psychedelic research? And uh, Debbie Harlow, who I showed it to this letter, um, and I, again, met her in 82 when she gave me that MDMA, Um, she showed it uh, to um, Laura Huxley, got a copy of this letter. So Aldous Huxley's widow. And that's what got me invited to these meetings at Esalen, was I started doing political work. And it was then in the summer of 84 that I started... um, a nonprofit before Maps called the Earth Metabolic Design Lab. It had been affiliated with Buckminster Fuller. A friend of mine had started it. wasn't using it. It was for alternative forms of energy, and we just decided to uh, talk about psychedelics as an alternative form of mental energy. And um, this was the nonprofit that we used to gather together support from the psychedelic community to prepare for the eventual crackdown that would come from DEA. And that actually happened in the summer of 84. And so that's where there was a 30-day comment period. I went to um, Washington, day 28 or so, and filed for a hearing to try to protect the medical use of MDMA. And that was going pretty well. We got the hearing. Um, Andy Weil had actually gone to uh, Harvard. One of his friends was um, Rick Cotton, who was a lawyer with a big DC law firm. They took the case pro bono. We had incredible witnesses. Robert Mueller had introduced me to various mystics of different religions who I'd sent MDMA to, and they were speaking to the media. So we're winning in the court of public opinion, winning in the courts, and that's what caused the DEA to freak out. And so while the hearing was going on, they emergency scheduled MDMA in 1985. And the irony there is that the first move to criminalize MDMA was itself illegal, in that the DEA did not have the power to emergency schedule drugs. Congress had given it to the attorney general, but the attorney general had never subdelegated it down to the DEA. And so um, some clever lawyers figured this out. So the first year that people got busted, they all got free once their lawyers started sharing this information, and the DEA had to admit. So that, but then the, the administrative law judge at the DEA comes around and says, Hey, you guys, you win. It should be Schedule Three it should be a medicine, it should be illegal for recreational use, but I'm persuaded there's. it should be a medicine. And the DEA, we knew was so against it. They had re- rejected the recommendation and made some bogus arguments, but that's where I started MAPS. I realized that we're not going to win legally. The only way to bring this back is going to be through FDA-regulated research, through science, through medicine, through sympathetic patients, and so in 86 is when I started MAPS as a nonprofit pharma company focused primarily on MDMA.
0: And that, that administrative law judge was simply not able to hold sway.
1: Well, administrative law judges don't have the power to compel, they provide recommendations to the head of the agency that they are evaluating. So when the DEA rejected the recommendation, we were able to sue them in the appeals court, where the appeals court judges do have the power to compel. But when they are adjudicating uh, disputes, usually between people and administrative agencies, when the administrative agency does something wrong, usually what they say is um, rethink it. Your rationale was wrong, rethink it. And so what they ended up doing is uh, telling the DEA with our first lawsuit, that um, their rationale was wrong. The DEA tried to claim that they couldn't reschedule drugs, only FDA could. Um, And that was wrong. So then the DEA comes back with another justification for rejecting the administrative law judge recommendation. And that was an eight-factor test was the same essentially as FDA approval. And there was no um, difference, really. It it just didn't say FDA approval. So um, we sued again and won again. And then the FDA comes out with this five-part standard. That's um, that, and then there was also a similar case going on about currently accepted medical use for marijuana. This was with a fellow named Lester Grinspoon. And so on the third time, so we sued again, but in the context of the definition of currently accepted medical use as it related to marijuana, Because, but it would be the same for MDMA. And on that time, finally, the DEA lawyers had wised up enough to um, satisfy the court. And so this five-part standard is still in existence. And that that just reinforces this idea that it's got to be through science and medicine. And that's really what has worked. So now, 35 years after I started MAPS in 86, we're on the verge of making MDMA into an FDA-approved medicine.
0: Yes. Take us tight into that story of how close we are right now, please, Rick.
1: Yeah. So In order to make a drug into a medicine, you have to do what are called phase three studies, two phase three studies. And these are the large-scale, randomized, placebo-controlled, double-blind studies. And your goal is to produce um, evidence demonstrating safety and efficacy. Um, The good part of it is that you don't have to demonstrate what's called mechanism of action. You know, that's super complicated. How do these drugs work? Um, We don't even know how a lot of drugs that we have actually work. Um, but you don't have to prove that to get approval from the FDA. So you have to do two phase three studies. Um, you have to do phase two studies designed to figure out how to, of you know, different things. You, you look at what are your doses, what is your treatment method, what's your population, what's your inclusion, exclusion criteria, what's your outcome measures. So, and before that, you have to do phase one studies, which are um, basic safety studies. So from 86, when I started MAPS, we had five protocols rejected from Harvard, from UC San Francisco, all for MDMA. Then the people at FDA who regulated psychedelics switched to a new group and they decided to open the door to psychedelics. So in 1992 with Charlie Grobe, we got permission for the first phase one dose response safety study. And that went through much of the 90s. And then in 99, we started MDMA PTSD research in Spain. Tragically, that got shut down for political reasons that we couldn't support. But in 2000, we got Um, started working on MDMA for PTSD with the FDA. 2001, we got approved. 2004, we finally got IRB approval so we could go forward. And we sort of had gotten over the neurotoxicity scares. Um, And then we basically had an end of phase two meeting at uh, November 29, 2016. So it took us 30 years to get to phase three. We started phase three in 2018. And in May, 10th of this year, we published the results in Nature Medicine of our first phase three study. And the results were outstanding. And we're now in the midst of our second phase three study. We'll have the interim analysis in April or May. Uh, We think we'll figure it in October of 2022. And we think by the end of 2023, we'll have approval in FDA, in Israel, and in Canada, because our phase three is Um, Two sites in Israel, two in Canada, and uh, 11 throughout the United States. So we'll get approval in all three countries. We're starting work in Europe. We're going global. And we believe that uh, 2024, around the end of 2024, we should have approval in Europe because they only require one phase three study because they'll take our U.S. data. We're working in Australia. In Brazil, we're we're thinking we'll have um, approval globally for MDMA for PTSD um, before the end of this decade in most countries of the world. And our goal is, to, in the first six years, to have a million MDMA sessions take place. And why that's so challenging is that it's not really MDMA. It's MDMA-assisted therapy. And the therapists have to be trained in our message. So the way you talk about the therapeutic milieu, that the therapeutic alliance is very important. It's the most important factor in therapeutic outcomes. and. People have to learn our method because it's not just give the MDMA. So we're going to have to train somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, twenty-four to 30,000 therapists in order to have this million MDMA sessions in the first six years. And that'll be probably half a million MD, uh, PTSD patients. Uh, on average, each will get two sessions, we're just assuming. So we are very close to that. And just for your listeners to understand that... Um, We've raised about $115 million in donations, which is a lot of money. And Richard, you'd helped us raise a bunch of it with fundraising dinners at your house, which were tremendous, and your own donations, which were tremendous. Um, But once we can reach sustainability, and that's when we have um, enough income from the sale of MDMA by prescription to cover our operational costs, and to cover costs of over 120, it'll probably be 200 people by then. We think that'll be the middle of 2024, and we anticipate somewhere in the neighborhood of a billion dollars worth of profits. And we have this public benefit corporation, which is the for-profit vehicle that's 100% owned by the nonprofit. That's the vehicle that will do our research and will sell MDMA for a profit because that's taxable. We can't keep that inside the nonprofit. But all the profits will go towards the purpose of MAPS, our mission. So I don't have any ownership. Nobody has any ownership. It's... owned by the nonprofit. Our donors don't have any ownership. And so what we're thinking is that we are a couple years away from developing this engine of income and of treating people with PTSD that will be a source of funds for nonprofit public uh, benefit research in psychedelics for decades and decades to come. Now, there's billions of dollars that have been going into or over a billion dollars, has gone into for-profit psychedelic companies. And there's several of them uh, publicly traded. A tie just went public. They have a $2.8 billion market cap. There's two other ones, Compass and MindMed, that have uh, market caps well over a billion dollars. Uh, we're ahead of everybody. We've Nobody's in phase three, and we have one phase three study that's successful, and we're already um, in the midst of our early stages of our second phase three study. So we've basically built, a um, billion-dollar unicorn, you could say, with a market cap of over a billion, if we were to go public, which we're probably not gonna do. But the the thing to say is that um, MDMA seems great for PTSD, and we've been able to demonstrate that. We work with chronic, severe, most treatment-resistant patients, and we get outcomes that are astounding. Um, Two months after the last MDMA session, two-thirds of chronic severe PTSD patients, many of whom severe, almost 90% have had suicidal ideation over a third serious. Almost a third have done positive behaviors to try to prepare for or actually attempt suicide. Two-thirds no longer have PTSD at the end of the two-month follow-up. And of the one-third that still has PTSD, most of them have had um, clinically significant benefits doesn't work for everybody. There's probably about 12% of the people it doesn't work for. Um, maybe if we could give them a fourth session, they would get better. But, um, but we've demonstrated that um, there's a, a breakthrough therapy here and it deserves to be made into a medicine. And we just have to complete the second phase
0: three study. You must get the question many times more than I do. The question being, I have a family member with PTSD. Where can I send them for MDMA fa- therapy? I get that Gosh. every single week. You must get thousands of those. What, what's the I answer? Do. What is the present answer to that?
1: Well, the first thing to say is that we have 11 sites in the United States, now 10, I think, actually, that people can apply to for free to get into MDMA research. So what you need to do is go to clinicaltrials.gov. It's a website, clinicaltrials.gov. And it tells you to put in the the diagnosis. You put in PTSD. Then you put in the drug MDMA. You click. And the number 18 uh, entry there is our phase three study. And that lists what the protocol is like, some of the inclusion-exclusion criteria, where all the cities are, who's the study coordinator. So if you want to volunteer for our study, and we would very much like that, um, go to clinicaltrials.gov, put in MDMA and put in PTSD number 18 and, and volunteer if you want to. Now, we're also starting what are called expanded access sites. There's another entry for that there. Expanded access is where there's no control group, but it's not a study, it's compassionate use, but people have to pay for it themselves, the treatment. So, we're also going to be starting up um, over the next couple months before the end of the year, another 10 sites in different cities than where phase three sites are so that it doesn't block phase three is gonna be expanded access sites. Um, But it is gonna be a challenge because people have to pay for it themselves, but there is no control group. Um, The other thing to say is that if you look on our website and you go under MDMA and you see research, and uh, I mean, you you go to maps.org, you see research, you go to the MDMA page, at the bottom there's what's called our treatment manual. And that's the the tool that we use to educate therapists. So where I'm going with this is that um, a lot of times people aren't ready to, they're not in cities where we have studies. And so I would, um, it's kind of a challenge. But if you're desperate, I think, um, you know, MDMA is, is difficult. Um, I described a situation before of people that took MDMA together and traumatic memories come up and the woman wasn't able to handle it. And checked herself into a hospital to avoid killing herself. But but I would say uh, before committing suicide or anything, people should consider uh, treating themselves and looking at our treatment manual. And um, just to have further say, there's one place that has a DEA licensed in the country to analyze drugs on an anonymous basis. Because a lot of MDMA is adulterated. You don't know what it really is. And so it's called Drug Detection Lab. We have an ecstasy pill testing program. It's run by uh, Arrowhead and DanSafe. And you can send your pills in there or powders, whatever, to get it analyzed. So that would be a good step to see what you're actually getting. But uh, but the main thing is come to our research.
0: Give it to us again, drug um, dot, uh,
1: com. It's in
0: drug detection. Um, so just,
1: look, just, just look up drug detection lab. Um, um, and, it's and it's in, in Sacramento, Sacramento, California. California. And, or you or go to Arrowhead, E-R-O-W-I-D, Arrowhead.org, and, and look, look at, at their, their ecstasy pill testing, pill testing program. Sometimes they'll even subsidize the costs
0: of the analysis. So uh, you're you're being asked now for a a reading list. Somebody wants to know, uh, Rick Doblin, what would you tell me? What are, the, what are a, a three or four or a half a dozen books? I'm just new to this. I, I know very little about it, but I want to learn. What are the top books that, that I should go out and put on my list and start reading?
1: Yeah, The Way of the Psychonaut by Stan Groff. So that's a two volume. He just wrote it. It's um, Encyclopedia for a New Generation. So it's the summary of his life's work. Stan just turned 90. So you're a young kid, Richard, compared to Stan. Um, He just had his 90th birthday on July 1. So I would start with Way of the Psychonaut. um, And it's available through the MAPS website. Um, There's another book that's really, really good called The Healing Journey by Claudio Naranjo that was written in 72. But it's about multiple different drugs and how they're used therapeutically. So it gives you a sense of the therapeutic use of it. There's a book called The Secret Chief Revealed, which is about the Leo Zeff, the leader of the underground psychedelic therapy movement who actually made uh, MDMA into a therapy medicine. He's the one that came up with the name Adam. Um, and so that's a short book, but it describes the different drugs that he uses, how he sees them, what their uses are. So The Secret Chief Revealed, also available through the maps.
0: Let me take a um, sidebar here say. and tell you, uh, Leo was my therapist, or one of my therapists. And so uh, good. he was fantastic. And I'm going to tell you a great story. One time uh, I was having an anxiety attack and I, he, he lived, we lived on the same block in in Kensington and the East Bay. And so I stopped in at his house. We were on a close basis. In addition to being my therapist, he was my friend. He would hang out at our house down the street. And I, I walked in, in and Leo was there. And I said, Leo, I thought I'd conquered anxiety like 15, 20 years ago. I, I, I know how to, how to deal with anxiety and, and dispense with it, but, but I, I'm having an anxiety attack. What, what, what do you have to say about that? And he looked at me with his one of his wonderful beatific smiles and he said, Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. And I said, <laughs> what, what are you talking about? What do you mean? Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. He said, because now you will know even more deeply what your patients are experiencing. Oh, wow. what a great thing to say. It was just beautiful. And that, that wasn't uh-huh. on the MBA. That was just Leo O natural and me au natural but it's a great Leo story. Yeah, wow. Leo was. Oh, uh,
1: um, I, I have another uh, great Leo story that I'll just share. Um, I mean, he did sit for me for an lsd harmaline uh, session and the an Ibogaine LSD session, but the story I want to tell is um, very interesting, and it, it relates to the therapeutic approach, and, and it, you kind of highlighted it, is that you don't try to suppress symptoms. You know, when symptoms come to the surface, you work with them, you deal with them. That That's part of the therapeutic process, and... Traditional psychiatry and psychotherapy is often about suppressing symptoms, particularly SSRIs and antidepressants. They're suppressing symptoms. So this was actually at another conference at Esalen, and people were going around um, introducing themselves, and 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 Leo was talking, and um, he he was saying that um, in you know that he was this underground therapist, and that there was only one time in his entire career that he used a tranquilizer, and so he described the situation. Um, where it was a guy he was sitting with and this guy with LSD got into this state where he sort of took off all of his clothes and he felt like he had to just break free. He didn't like being in this room. He didn't like focusing inward. He wanted to um, break free. And so Leo, you know, tried to manage this situation and keep him in the, in the room. But this guy overpowered Leo and he ran out of the room. He ran out of the house running down the street naked on LSD. And this is like Leo's patient. And he's... So Leo said, well, I took a tranquilizer
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: and went out to get him.
0: <laughs> okay, back to your reading list. Claudio Naranjo was the latest, okay. was, was one written yeah. in 1972. And Stan Groff yeah. that you mentioned. What else on your list?
1: Yeah, yeah. Okay, and then uh, the secret chief revealed... The secret um,
0: chief, Leo th- Zep. There's
1: another... Um, Book that I would um, recommend called *The Journey to the East* by Herman Hesse. So it's not actually about psychedelics, but it's about the spiritual quest, and it's very inspirational. It's a, you can read it in a couple hours. Um, it's a great book to read to a date out loud. You know, I used it to romance my wife, and and read it. But it's it's about um, losing your way and finding your way on the spiritual path. So I think it's very very profound. Um, And it's one of his more overlooked books, but The Journey to the East by Herman Hesse.
0: Yeah, that's great. I reread Siddhartha recently, and it uh, it still reads great. Oh,
1: yeah, that's so good.
0: Um, Herman Hesse.
1: There's another book that I'll um, recommend that has to do more with um, kind of a political strategy, um, but it's Island by Aldous Huxley. So it's the last book that he wrote in his life, and it's about a psychedelic society, what an ideal psychedelic society would look like. And it involves, you know, they don't have age limits. Like when people get Barbat with the rites of passage, they would get a psychedelic, the way I, I think it should have been for me. So it's this incredible elaboration of this um, kind of um, idealistic, futuristic, um, utopian society where psychedelics have been woven into it. And if you've seen the movie Avatar, um, you know, there's kind of a similar ending where, and I think what happened is Aldous um, changed his idea as he was writing this book. And so the, the end of the book is that the oil companies come and they destroy the island and destroy the culture in order to mine the oil that's underneath it. And in Avatar, of course, we've got the um, people come to get the um, mineral that's underneath this world tree. So the the political message that I get, it's good to read island just to see what an idealistic utopian psychedelic society might look like. But the message is that there is no island utopia for us. We cannot create our own little psychedelic community with the offshore clinics or anything. We have to change society from the inside out. And that's what's led to this dual strategy of maps. One is drug development. The other is drug policy reform so that people can have their own experiences legally. And I don't think a lot of the for-profit companies have a misunderstanding. They think that um, for, you know, legalization will hurt their business model. But I think it'll actually create, destigmatize us and create even more people that wanna to go to trained professionals and psychedelic clinics covered by insurance. But Island would be that book. Um, and then if you want another one, um, as long as we're on the Huxley theme, this is incredible. It's called This Timeless Moment by Laura Huxley. And so it's about um, Aldous' death. And he had asked Laura to give him LSD on his deathbed. And so this book is a lot about what happened as Aldous was dying under the influence of LSD. But a lot of it is beforehand where he and uh, Laura, he's trying to write his final chapter, which is about Shakespeare and death. And he gets to the point where he can barely, um, he can't write, he can only dictate and then Laura would like would read it back to him and he would edit it that way. Um, but it's this incredible book about this, the summation of all this is philosophy at the end of his life. And also about um, how he died under the influence of LSD and then some mysterious uh, synchronistic things that happened afterwards. So this timeless moment by Laura Huxley.
0: Oh, that's great. That's great. so, if you were doing, instead of this lengthy or lengthier interview, a very extremely brief one, like the kind you see on CNN, where somebody's walking along and then somebody grabs, runs over with a microphone and asks a quick question, and the question to you would be, what are the major wisdoms or insights that you've gained from psychedelics? And you just got to rattle off some headlines. What would you rattle off?
1: Yeah, uh, 5-MeO-DMT. It sort of took me to the point of uh, creation, I felt. And what I got that sense is that in any moment, in any instant, there's freedom to change your patterns. This sense that we have this ability to get behind all of our cruise control and that we can um, have that power and energy to make a change. You could say a discontinuous change, but that there's that freedom to change. That that was, I guess, the main message I got from 5-MeO-DMT. The main message which I got from Ibogaine was this whole confrontation. I spent like 10, 12 hours vomiting, and it was about this confrontation with um, wanting to be perfect and, and not being able to be comfortable with my own flaws. And it was this, I, I felt that I was crucified on the cross of self-perfectionism. So, it was the link between self perfectionism, self criticism, and self hatred. And from that, actually, I got this sense after just exhaustion. I called it transcendence through exhaustion that um, you need the self critical part, but you need to separate it out from the self hatred. So, we, we need to have a constantly running narrative what I did wrong, what I could do better, you know, learning, but it's not painful, it's like helpful. So that's what I got from my that I was able to separate out self-criticism from self-hatred. Um, I'd say from MDMA, the most mystical experience of my life was this sense that um that there was this force of love woven into the universe. Uh, you asked about God. Or or you know, what what do I think uh about that? Um I I just felt that I could disappear into the universe. The universe was so large you know, that that the roaring of the ocean, I was doing this uh, camping out at the base of the um, mountains at um, Big Sur and the Pacific Ocean. The the stars were enormous. I felt I would dissipate into the universe. And then I realized I'm still here. And I felt that I was, why am I still here? Why am I still around? Everything's spinning, everything's in motion. And I realized that um, I was being, quote, cradled in the arms of gravity, that gravity was this, cohering force. And I felt gravity in the arms uh, as warm as in the arms of a lover. And I felt that there's this woven into everything is this force of love. And I was thinking about Brother David Steindelrost, who you also know, who was a um, Roman Catholic monk. And I was trying to figure out why I'd be celibate. And um, once, and then I I had this experience of this cradled in the arms of gravity. And I thought, great, this is it. You know, that you have this universal sense of love it's not on a particular person but it's sort of woven into the universe and 30 years after that in 2015 i was at a conference um that brother david was speaking at i was sitting next to him at dinner and i shared this story with him and i said uh, most mystical experience of my life i was thinking about you what do you think about it and he was quiet after i told him the story and then the first thing he said was um i think about gravity every day <laughs> Yeah. Um, so that that's not as succinct as you want but those are three important lessons that I'd say I've learned
0: you, you might remember earlier today when we were talking about uh, age and the effects of age and I said to you I feel the same as I always did when I'm sitting down or laying down but not when I'm standing up that's <laughs> what I thought of when he said uh, about gravity unquestionably <laughs> yeah. so how successful do you feel you've been in bringing back information and wisdom from your psychedelic experiences, bringing them across into this reality so that they're part of you in everyday life?
1: Uh, I'd say I've been very, yeah, integration. Yeah, I think I've been very successful at it. Yeah, um, I think that, well, MDMA being the most, the easiest to integrate of all the drugs, the the classic psychedelics harder to integrate, but I've had a lot of practice at that. And as I said, spent 10 years just trying to ground some of it. But, um, you know, like, so I'll just say, you know, during the pandemic, when we're stuck at home, I I just felt connected with this whole community all over the world and with people I never felt isolated or alone or lonely, even though I wasn't seeing anybody, just me and my wife here or sometimes our kids. But, um, you know, that sense of being part of a bigger picture I have, I have, um, you know, lost a certain fear of death. Um, I have that sort of sense of how we're all connected. Um, so, yeah, no, I, I feel that I've been able to do a good job at it. Um, there's a lot more to do. You know, you know there, there's new challenges at every age of the lifespan.
0: Well, that, that that point you're making now about there's a lot more to do. You know, I interviewed uh, for this series uh, Dr. Doctor Alan Ajaya. I don't know if you know him. Yeah. Oh, co-
1: yeah, I know him really
0: well. Oh, you yeah. know Alan. Okay. So, Alan in the interview, talks about having done LSD 900 times. Uh, and, yeah. you know, he's a psychologist, so he counts, and he, he knows the number. And 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 I said to him, Alan, d- did you ever feel saturated, like, you know, you've had enough? And he very calmly said to me, Richard, there's always more to learn, <laughs> and, and which I thought was a great answer. And many of the elders that I've interviewed have said that over the decades, their experimentation and learning from psychedelics has trailed off uh, and that they have pretty much ceased. Occasionally, I run into someone like the philosopher Charles Bush, who just took a 10-year hiatus, but now at age 80, he's about to begin taking psychedelics again. What can you Yes. And what can you share with me about your thoughts about do you do you stop using them at a certain point? Or as you just stated, different developmental stages require different learning. Where are you on that issue? Um,
1: I I think that there's continual things to learn. I think that there's continual things to learn and that different challenges. You know, Eric Erickson talked about the eight stages of life and the different things. And. So, you know, I still learn from my psychedelic experiences. Um, I, I think it's all, up to each individual.
0: OK, I want to. But, com- uh, yeah, I want to come back to something else also about dosage. You you, you know, you talked earlier today about uh, 250 micrograms being a pretty large dose. And, and nowadays people are taking more likely to be taking 100 uh, micrograms. My own experience, though Rick, is that 100 micrograms is really—it's um, not really what I'd call a full dose of LSD. It, It's—you uh, know—Amanda took 100 micrograms every single day and, and learned how to just do everything in the world uh, that she ordinarily does on 100. But we both know that you're not—it's going to be very different experience to try to navigate the world on 250, 350, or 400 micrograms. And do you have anything further you might want to add with regard to dosage? Well,
1: I mean, even though the the doses are lower, people can take multiple doses. Yes. And that happens all the time. So it's just uh, people are not going to be existentially confronting um, dissolving ego unintentionally by taking one hit of blotter and then you know, it's more than they thought.
0: In in, in the work that's being done in the trials, what's the dosage of MDMA that's being used?
1: We use a hundred, well, there's three MDMA sessions one month apart. The first one is 80 milligrams followed by 40 milligrams two hours later. The second one is a negotiation, but usually 90, 95% of the time people go up to 120 followed by 60. So the, the, the supplemental dose is to prolong the experience. It's not to make it um, stronger. Um, you can give it between one and a half and two and a half hours. So there's a little way if you give it a one and a half, maybe it makes it a tiny bit stronger. Two, two and a half hours just prolongs it. And then the third session is similar. It's a negotiation. It could be the 80 over 40 or it's the 120, but it's almost always the 120 over 60. And so those are the doses that we use. We, we have experimented with zero, meaning inactive placebo, 25 milligrams, 30 milligrams, 40 milligrams, 50 milligrams, 75, 100, 125, and 150. and um, and um,
0: what, what could you settled t- on
1: 120?
0: What could you tell tell us about? I remember, I'm going to come back to something else. Uh, we haven't seen each other in a long time, but I do remember that you told me that you have found that some people have a similar experience with 75, for their initial dose of MDMA, as others do with 125. Do you have any more recent uh, information on that with regarding those people and dosage? Yeah,
1: well, it was our study of uh, veterans, firefighters, and police officers where we used um, 30 milligrams, 75 milligrams, and 125. And the 75 milligram group did better than the 125 milligram. However, randomization doesn't always mean that everything's equal. The groups were... Um, more or less, they were were almost identical on PTSD symptoms, which was good. But the 125 milligram group was much higher on depression. So still the 75 milligram dose group did the best. And um, that's why we changed our protocol so that the first session is 80 over 40, then 120 over 60. Um, But Most people, I think it's a good introduction, but I don't think that 80 over 40 is the best dose. I think going higher, 120 over 60 is better for most
0: people. And you know very well that microdosing with LSD, uh, about 10 micrograms or so, has caught on somewhat in the culture. Uh, Do you have anything you want to share about A, microdosing with LSD? And then is there anything you can share with us with regard to, and is there such a thing as microdosing with MDMA?
1: Well, microdosing means below the threshold of awareness. So with MDMA, there have been people that have used 15, 20 milligrams on a daily basis for pain. They don't get the psychological effect. But we discovered that uh, 25, 30, 40 milligrams, those doses made people uncomfortable for therapy, for PTSD. So they still got better, but they didn't get as much benefit as if somebody got therapy without any MDMA at all. So I think microdosing for MDMA doesn't really make sense. And this low doses may be effective for pain, but not for um, any kind of psychological conditions. I think you need to go to the heart of the trauma, to the heart of the problems, work at the core of the issues and work through it. I think microdosing for um, psychedelics, other classic psychedelics, it can be good for attention, creativity. Um, Some people use it for depression. But I think if you're using it for any kind of psychological issue, it's better to um, supplement, if you're going to microdose, supplement it with sessions, full dose sessions, because you want to get to the core of the problem. Microdosing for depression is like symptom reduction. But really, you want to get to the core of why are you depressed in the first place. So I think. Microdosing classic psychedelics is better for non-therapeutic purposes. Again, enjoyment, creativity, focus, concentration, um, work even. But um, I think the situation is um, very, um, there's a lot of information. There was one study that was done, microdosing LSD for creativity. It didn't show any benefit. So... Um, what the claim was this was the Eleusis uh, company, and they claimed that the uh, measures weren't that sensitive, and people who volunteered were all pretty creative and they couldn't tell a difference but um th- that's my my view of it now is um, for therapeutic uses do macrodosing with therapy and try to get to the core problem, so you're free of
0: drugs. Macrodosing with therapy uh, so but symptom suppression certainly. Uh, with with a with microdoses, as, as you well put, I mean, for example, that's what uh, Ayelet uh, Waldman talked about in her book, right, where she she had she suppressed or or had fewer symptoms of her bipolar situation as a result of the uh, of the microdosing. Um, what what do you see? Can you look into a crystal ball about what you see coming in psychedelic science and medicine? 10 and 20 years from now, that's going to be my last question. We're going to wrap it up.
1: Okay, good. Yeah. Um, so I think that um, 2023, 2024 is when we get approval for MDMA, psilocybin, 2025. We already have about 300 ketamine clinics in America. We'll eventually have about, um, I think, 6,000 psychedelic clinics in America, and people will be cross trained and they will end up um, you know, working with ketamine, working with um, MDMA, psilocybin, other drugs, 5-MeO, DMT that come down the line, and that we will end up um, customized treatments for people. But it's going to take a decade of that to educate the public about moving beyond that to full legalization of psychedelics, which I think will take place in 2035. And I think that the clinics, as we start, they will be focused on patients, but eventually they will and, and not that far into the future, they will start to be family members. So for example, we already have done a project with cognitive behavioral conjoint therapy for PTSD, where it's a, conjoint means couples or dyads, where the person with PTSD is treated, but the person that's impacted by their rela- with the relationship by their PTSD is brought into the therapy. And when we blended that with MDMA, both members of the couple or the dyad got MDMA. So it gets into couples therapy, as you were saying but it was tremendously effective. And when you think about MDMA or psilocybin or LSD for people that are dying, they're not the only ones suffering, it's their family members too. So the psychedelic clinics will start with the patients, move to the family members, eventually move towards um, this um, personal growth kind of situations. And I think we'll move in 2035 towards licensed legalization, which is different than what we have now. But I mean, you get a license to do these drugs, you go to these clinics, you get your first experience under supervision, then you get a license to do these drugs. If you misbehave, you get punished for your misbehavior, but not for your state of consciousness or your use of drugs. Maybe you have to go to uh, education class, you lose your license for a while, eventually you get it back. But it's a way to sort of have um, the knowledge of what people are getting into built into the culture. And then I think by 2035, we moved to licensed legalization. And then by 2050, we either have a spiritualized humanity or we're in really um, serious problems, even more so than we have today. But I'm hopeful. And I think that that's the trajectory for psychedelics. Oh, oh, oh if I could mention one last thing, we're trying to build our, our base of support. So we, we're starting what's called team psychedelics. And so we're looking for monthly donors of any amount. And we have over about 1,200 right now. We'd like to get up to 10,000. So we are supported by philanthropy um, it'll take us a long you know till middle 2024 we think to be supported by sale of mdma and so i'd like to encourage people who like what we're doing to uh, donate and become monthly donors
0: and for to do that they go to maps.org is that the best way to do it rick yeah yeah maps.org okay i hope you all heard that maps.org join in on that program you'll benefit your children'll benefit your grandchildren will definitely benefit. Because as you could hear from Rick today, this is a decades long program. The government moves slowly, but with people like Rick leading the way, there is movement and that's what can give us all optimism. So again, thank you all for joining me for today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health and Politics. And with special thanks to our producer, Charlie Deist, our sound engineer, David Springer, Who, working together as a team make this broadcast possible. Uh, The program and our other programs can be found archived on our website mindbodyhealthpolitics.org. Please join me again next Tuesday at nine o'clock Pacific Standard Time for our stimulating broadcast. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Lewis-Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness.